Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Two Tongues Podcast. Back again for another episode with just me today, Chris. A little bit different, though. I felt like I was, um, I don't know, getting a little stale with the young stuff. I still really like it, but I I just, I don't know, man. I just want to bombard you guys, you know, week after week after week with the same topic. So I'm going to sprinkle in something else. It's, it's related. Um, you'll see it's related. But basically... I'll just tell you, I have a little bit of a habit um, at night. So I'm a married man, and uh, when you watch TV, um, relaxing at the end of the day with your husband or wife, there's some level of compromise that happens, right? I mean, you want to watch something that you're both going to be interested in uh, to some degree, and what that means is that neither of you get to watch what you really fucking want to watch. Uh, that's just how it is. Uh, compromise, you guys. Uh, compromise. <clears throat> in any case, at night when we go lay down... Some people watch TV when they're falling asleep. Some people don't. I've never been a TV person laying in bed, uh, at least not falling asleep watching TV. My wife, though, has no problem with that. She'll fall asleep watching TV, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So when we go upstairs at night, uh, I'll put on whatever the fuck I want, and she'll just fall asleep right away. So no problems, man. Everybody wins. Um, I tell you that because at night when I lay down, um, I usually put on science documentaries, nature documentaries, science documentaries, physics documentaries. Um, I, I always have this deep interest in quantum physics and mathematics, um, largely because there's such a mystery to it. There's so much interesting stuff there that we, we've talked about on the podcast, but it's been a, quite a while since we've done that. And one of the guys that I talk about a lot, I talk about Brian Green. I talk about um, a professor named Jim Al-Khalili, um, and there's some others but Jim Akalili does some really good documentaries. Brian Greene does too. You know, they're like um, pop pop culture scientists. They're people that write books and do documentaries to make confusing scientific topics accessible to regular people. Well, I'm a regular person. You know, I'm not a scientist. I I, uh, I struggled with math growing up, and um, I'm super resentful about that. I think that's something I need to remedy. But man, can you imagine putting the work in to learn math kind of from the ground up as an adult? Uh, you know, I remember some of it, but I have to relearn lots, and, and I just don't have the time for it. But long story short, I watch this stuff. I kind of half understand it, but I find some of these topics so intriguing. And um, there's a couple. Um, I think I'm trying to remember the one is called Fabric of the Cosmos. I think that's the Brian Green one that I like to watch. The one that's Jim Akalili that uh, I watched like 
you would not believe. I fall asleep watching it sometimes or I'll, or I'll be falling asleep and I'll turn it off and go to bed. So some of this stuff is just getting absorbed, you know, subconsciously while I'm like half asleep watching TV, but it's called Quark Science. And, uh, Episode 3 of the series is really fucking good. Episode 3 is called The Secret Life of Chaos. And uh, Jim Al-Khalili is the uh, narrator, right? He's the professor of, I think, of physics or maybe math. I can't, I can't quite remember. At the University of Surrey in, um, in England. And he's, uh, you know, he's got a proper British accent. And uh, I like listening to him, you know. Smart, smart dude. But The Secret Life of Chaos is interesting. The whole series, Quark Science, is talking about mysteries in quantum physics and what we, can, what we understand about nature and the world uh, from the scientific and mathematical perspective and like the history behind the mysteries and things that, that these scientists were working on, the problems they were trying to solve. Super, super interesting to me. What I found most interesting a couple of nights ago, so I'm re-watching this, and... Um, and I was, I guess I, maybe I was more awake than normal. And I started picking up on things that sounded familiar to me. Now, remember, Jim Al-Khalili is a, he's, he's talking about mathematics. He's talking about physics and what he's saying sounds familiar, not because I know the physics or the math, but because I've heard these things before somewhere else. And the somewhere else happens to be, well, it happens to come largely from Carl Jung, who we've been talking about a lot lately, uh, Jordan Peterson, who we talk about all the time, and um, the myths and religious stories that I'm so interested in. So what I'm hearing from Jim Al-Khalili talking about physics are things that are reminiscent of exactly the type of woo-woo mysteries I like to get my hands dirty with, you know? And uh, I guess what I thought was, that what we have is like a retelling, a scientific retelling of our oldest stories. You know, these myths that go way, way back, uh, like the ones we talk about uh, often when uh, I bring up the Ouroboros, which I'm going to do today. You know, the, the ancient Babylonian creation myth, the ancient Greek creation myth, you know, the biblical creation myth. Um, these things are going to sound, when we're talking about the... Um, the stuff that Jim that Jim Al-Khalili is going to bring to us today, it fits really well into this mythological narrative. And I thought that was so cool because what we have is scientific truths or at least, you know, the cutting edge scientific knowledge that we have that, that tells us about what, what we've convinced ourselves about the origin of the universe, about uh, how th how the, the world got here, how the universe got here, how we got here, all that kind of stuff. And so it's almost like a scientific version of this mythological story. And I thought that was cool for a couple reasons. I, I, you know, it's like we live in this empirical age where science and rationality and logic are very important and we want to... We want to throw away everything we can that we think uh, we're holding on to for the wrong reasons. And our, our myths and our religious stories are like first on the chopping block as far as that goes. And here we have, you know, a respected scientist telling the same story in a scientific way. And the people who would normally say, you know, religion is, is hokum and mythology, we can toss that right out the window. Those people can't argue with the scientific story. 
because they're scientists, they're empiricists. That's what they want is a scientific story. And what we have here is the same story told through the lens of math and science. And it's just amazing. You're going to see it's amazing. Now, the fact that the scientific story matches so closely to the mythological story, it makes me wonder if we have, like in our myths, in our collective stories that go back to the dawn of, you know, mankind, do we have some sort of strange unconscious manner of grasping or intuiting like these deep truths you know that physics has been able to uncover do we have a way of knowing that before we've discovered the science that backs it up because that's what our stories are saying we're going to hear the same the same stuff that we hear in our myths we're going to hear today from the scientific perspective so if we've known this stuff for 100,000 years, and quantum physics has just caught up in the 1930s. How, how in the world did we know this stuff before the science caught up? And until the science caught up, we could easily, if we wanted, brush it off, you know? But it's much harder to do that now. And then it also makes me think of this mythological story that we, that we talk about of the hero, you know, the hero is the, is, the, is the figure that goes into the unknown and finds there something valuable. So, you know, that's the, the knight that goes into the dark cave and slays the dragon and, and frees the virgin. That's the hero story, you know, from the Middle Ages. But any hero story, it's similar. It's, it's a character who goes into chaos, who goes into the unknown, who goes into a place where he, you know, isn't prepared and doesn't have knowledge and struggles against it and wins something, you know, gets something as a consequence, uh, something new, something novel, something he didn't have before. And, and I just wonder, if we have been telling stories for tens of thousands of years that are telling us the same thing that science is now telling us is true, then I have, it's, it seems as though these mythological and religious stories that come from our fantasies, they come from our unconscious there's something like a treasure. There's something like a treasure that we can go into our unconscious and find. We just didn't realize it was a treasure until science caught up with it and said, oh, you know that story you've been telling? It's been true all along, and it's been fundamentally important all along to everything. Yeah, I would think that qualifies as a treasure, and it's something that we knew before we knew. Amazing. It's fucking amazing. It's like some supernatural shit. How? How can human beings tell a story that we've essentially made up, you know, that holds some deep truth that tens of thousands of years later we discover is fucking scientifically true? Okay. So that's what we're going to get into. All right. So this comes from Quark Science, season one, episode three, called The Secret Life of Chaos. Um, brought to you by uh, Professor uh, Jim Akhalili of the University of Surrey. The first quote from the documentary goes like this. It says, The same laws that make the universe chaotic and unpredictable, that turn simple dust into human beings, there's a strange and unexpected relationship between order and chaos. All right, so I don't know what you think about that. 
there's a strange and unexpected relationship between order and chaos. Now, it's strange that order and chaos as words are used because they're really, well, chaos anyway is, is explicitly a mythological word, originally a mythological word. Now, we know we use that word to mean things that are mundane and not mythological. We, we use chaos to mean all kinds of things. But originally, chaos was opposite of cosmos, and chaos and cosmos were gods, ancient Greek gods from the creation story. Cosmos is order. Chaos is chaos. They're opposites. And in the beginning, in our mythological stories, they're together. They're opposites, but they're together. They're not differentiated from one another. And the fact that they are together is something like a creative act. Two opposite principles, like the feminine and the masculine. And when you bring them together, you get something like sex. It's a generative, creative act. And this, you know, fully encompassed system, this order and chaos together, what Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung will call the Ouroboros, or the syzygy, this is the thing that was there in the beginning. This is what we tell in our myths. A strange relationship between order and chaos. In our myths, the relationship that's strange and unexpected is the fact that opposites are not different things, but one thing. The relationship between order and chaos is that that's one thing. And we know that from our, from our myths. And... You know, the math mathematician, physicist, Professor Jamal Khalili is telling us, well, there's something to that. And that brings me to the first section today, which is called self-organization. All right, so Professor Al-Khalili brings up Alan Turing. Uh, for you guys who know Alan Turing, I don't have to explain to you, but it goes back to the um, Second World War. Alan Turing was a amazingly intelligent mathematician and physicist. Um, he was somebody that, um, um, well, he's notorious for the development of computers. You know, he was at the very beginning of this idea of computation that became, that became modern computers. You know, a very, very important guy, Alan Turing. But where he became famous in the beginning, and this is what they talk about in the beginning of the documentary, was a paper that he published in uh, 1951 called The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis. Let me just tell you about this. So, Alan Turing comes up with this formula, or a set of formulas, and they explain what behavior scientists are seeing, when, and they can't explain, when they watch cells, you know, under a microscope, let's say, that start off as one one cell, you know, splitting into a bunch of, you know, replicants, how those cells eventually change to become different types of cells. Like what happens when you um, fertilize an egg and they just start, cells just start dividing and reproducing? Well, you've got one cell in the beginning and it becomes every different part of your body. It becomes your eyes, your organs, your skin, you know, your blood, all kinds of things. How does that happen? How do you have one cell becoming all this different stuff? And this is something that Alan Turing discovered follows a mathematical process. It's something that's completely impossible to explain biologically, but somehow it can be described mathematically, and that blew everybody's mind. 
you know, this this paper, Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis, talked about, well, the process by which identical cells in an embryo begin to clump together and then differentiate from one another to become all the different tissue in the body. And Jim Al-Khalili says, how does this happen with no thought, no central coordination? How do cells that start off identical know how to become, say, skin, while others become part of the heart? Morphogenesis is a spectacular example of something called self-organization. He says, Turing's equations did, for the first time, describe how a biological system could self-organize. They showed that something featureless can develop features. Okay. All right, so you've got something like a, like a cell uh, in an embryo that's, well, it's one type of thing, and it becomes all sorts of other types of things. How can something who's just dividing and becoming copies of itself, how can that become all the different types of cells that are in your body? It's a mystery. You start off with something that is uniform, and you get all kinds of difference and novelty. You get all kinds of newness out of it. How does that happen? There, There is this very, very old scientific axiom that goes way back to, to you know, ancient philosophy and it says like begets like and that's what everybody always understood who's doing philosophy or doing science that you can't you have when you take something um, and you get it to replicate or you get it to reproduce what you're going to get is something like what it came from it's always the case you're not going to get something polarly different from what you started with you're going to get something like what you started with like begets like so how can we start with some, something featureless and get features? How does that happen? If like begets like, how the fuck does that happen? It's something like getting something from nothing. It's something like that. It's impossible. It's impossible. So how? How is it a reality? All right, he goes on, he says, Think of the way a steady wind flowing across sand creates all kinds of shapes. The grains self-organize into ripples, waves, and dunes. He says, Turing argues that in a very similar way, chemicals seeping across an embryo might cause its cells to self-organize into different organs. Okay, so that's interesting. So, so what, what he's saying is if you can imagine the way um, the, the Sahara looks, you know, all, all you have is this one force acting on the sand. You just have wind blowing across the, the desert. And the sand itself, it's not just, a, a, you know, a chaotic, random, um, you know, assortment of grains of sand all over the place. Instead, it organizes into these dunes, right? You get these shapes, these waves and patterns that appear that appear seemingly out of nowhere. How do they get there? How does, this, how does wind create this pattern in the sand? So he goes on here. He says, um, he's talking about Turing. He says, his equations could generate markings similar to those on the skins of animals. All right, so the same sort of formula that he's come up with that can describe how, um, how dunes and... Um, waves and ripples and sand can be created. Those same formulas also 
also describe the shapes that you see on cows or, you know, leopards or zebras or something like that, um, that those formulas actually seem to correspond to more patterns that we see in nature. Patterns in the sand, patterns that appear on animal skins. What is going on? What, what, what is going on here that, the, that the, this math is, is able to describe all sorts of different and unrelated patterns that we see in nature like that? That formula must be describing something deeply, deeply fundamental to nature that it's accurately describing sand dunes and the patterns on a cow. Unbelievable. You know, what is that? And Jamal clearly says... We now know Turing had grasped the idea that the wonders of creation are derived from the simplest of rules. He had taken the first step to a new kind of science. Okay. So now you can see we're talking about order being created in nature. How does that happen? Um, that there's math behind it and seemingly the same kind of math behind all sorts of patterns and forms in nature. Whenever we see order, there's this sort of similar mathematical vein that underpins it. So what's next? So now he brings up another, well, contemporary scientist, but a Russian scientist that never actually, um, because of the time uh, during the Second World War, never had any connection with Turing. Um, his name is Belusov, a Russian scientist. And um, he had um, an experiment where he was able to generate something called the, the Bizet reaction, B-I-Z-E-T. Basically, this is what it is. He, he created a chemical mixture because he was studying like how bodies burn sugar, like glucose. How do we make how do we turn that into energy in our body? So he was trying to figure that out. That's the problem he was working on. And what he did was he found a chemical mixture that would replicate part of the process of metabolizing sugar. So he's like mixing these chemicals together and studying what happens, trying to understand how that relates to a human being who eats food and turns it into energy. And what happened in this chemical mixture is something completely baffling. The reaction, like, you know, again, the chemical reaction, when he mixes these, these together, will change... It will change the color of the chemical. So this, in this case, liquid. Um, they would go clear, right? They combine, like some chemical reaction, they go clear. But then after a certain period of time, then they become colored again. And then, the, then they turn clear again. And then they turn colored again. And all of this is happening without any intervention. The scientist is doing nothing but watching the chemicals interacting. And what you seem to have is a chemical reaction occurring and then undoing itself. And then occurring and then undoing itself. And there's never been anything observed like this ever anywhere in history, anywhere in nature. Ever, ever, ever. What in the fuck is going on? And Belusov was like asking the same question. Now, Jim Al-Khalili says that the chemical mix oscillated between colored and cleared as if driven by some hidden chemical metronome. He discovered something that was almost like magic. A physical process that seemed to violate the laws of nature. 
And he says, it turns out that Belusov oscillating chemicals, far from contravening the laws of physics, were actually a real-world example of precisely the behavior that Turing's equations predicted. Right? Spontaneous order. Now he says other scientists showed that if you leave a variation of, um, of Belusov's chemicals unstirred in a Petri dish, instead of simply oscillating, they actually self-organize into shapes. They create stunningly beautiful structures and patterns, waves, scrolls, and spirals out of nowhere. The way Belusov's chemicals move as a coordinated wave is exactly the way our heart cells are coordinated as they beat. So from animal skins to heartbeats, self-organization seems to operate all over the natural world. Unbelievable. So what, what Belusov's chemicals do in a Petri dish, if, if you look this up, if you just look up Bizet reaction and you look, it's amazing. You've got the same colors, you know, the, the color and the clear that we saw in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the liquid version. But on the Petri dish, the changes sort of radiate out of nowhere. So you'll just see shapes appearing out of nowhere and then moving across the Petri dish and interacting with other shapes that just randomly pop up. And... Uh, and the interference between these shapes creates new shapes and new geometry and gets very complicated and sophisticated. And it's something that you would think would require some intelligent artist to create, you know? It's way too uniform. It's way too perfect than anything you see in nature. And it's happening all by itself. So you have this idea of self-organization that comes into the picture. That brings me to the next section, which is called chaos. All right, chaos. Uh, begins like this. We used to think, if you saw very irregular behavior, this must be the result of some random outside influences. It couldn't be internally generated. Okay, so the reason that science took that perspective is because they saw the universe like a like a big machine, like a mechanism. The word that that's used to describe that is a clockwork universe, right? So in that situation, everything is determined in the system. Things can only behave in one way, just like any machine. You know, it's designed to do one thing. So they would expect that the universe would continue to do what it does, that everything would be predictable and could be determined based upon how it's all put together, so seeing chaos, seeing irregular behavior or behavior that can't be predicted from, you know, understanding the system, there's just no place in that, uh, in the scientific paradigm for that kind of uncertainty. At least there wasn't for a long time. Um, then Jim Alkali continues, he says, looked at from this point of view, the whole idea of self-organization seemed absurd. So the idea that you could get order out of chaos, you could get, uh, again, we said like begets like, imagine you can get like from unlike, you know, that's absurd, anti-scientific, right? That's, that's the way it was, it was seen. And he says, ironically, 
the events that forced scientists to take self-organization seriously was the discovery of a phenomenon known as chaos. All right, so now we're going to get the scientific definition of, of chaos. It goes like this. In science, it has a very specific meaning. It says that a system that is completely described by mathematical equations is more than capable of being unpredictable without any outside interference whatsoever. Some very, very simple rules or equations with nothing random in them can have outcomes that are entirely unpredictable. Okay, so that's interesting. It's interesting for a couple of reasons uh, that come to my mind. The first one is that you can get something unpredictable from something predictable um, is interesting because it's a paradox. You know, it's something that doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be possible. It goes against logic and reason. But whenever we see paradox, there's always something like, well, it reminds me of, anyway, uh, the mystic experience. Because mystic intuition is also a paradox. You know, the idea of opposites in union is a paradox. Um, you know, opposites can't be one thing, can they? Paradox. And it, it also does something interesting because when, you, when they say that, that the world follows these simple mathematical equations, these simple mathematical descriptions, and from these predictable, you know, equations, you can get all kinds of unpredictable things. What that means is that the unpredictable is a part of nature, deeply a part of nature. And it actually throws a wrench in the whole clockwork universe idea because it's, it's an anti-deterministic idea. It, it means that even if you know everything there is to know about the laws of physics, that you can't predict what's going to happen all of the time, that there's, you know, that there's going to be some mysteries. There's going to be some unpredictable events or unpredictable behavior. And science is all about being able to predict. That's interesting, man. It's like, you know, if you know the laws of physics, um, the laws of motion and how energy works and all that, you're supposed to be able to do an experiment, right, and recreate the thing that you proposed hypothetically. That's the scientific method. It's about determinism. It's about predictability. And what good are the laws of physics if they can't be used to predict what's going to happen. So that's interesting, right? It's like there's this element of surprise or novelty that's just built right into the fabric of reality. It's just, it's a mystery. All right, then he says chaos, which, we, which we're going to take to mean scientifically is, you know, unpredictability or novelty. So chaos is woven into the basic laws of physics. What chaos did was to show us the possibilities inherent in the simplest mathematics. So those, those would be the, the ones that describe the laws of physics, right? They're much broader and much more general than you might imagine. And so a clockwork universe can nonetheless behave in the rich, complex way that we experience. I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting conclusion. It's almost like Professor Al-Khalili wants to keep the clockwork universe, even though he's just suggested that a clockwork universe is not predictable like it's meant to be. He, yeah, he's saying, like, we still, we still have that. 
we still have a universe based upon completely known uh, math, but the but the result of that math is completely unpredictable. So you've got this unpredictability that's built into the mechanism. It's built built into the clock. Amazing. All right, then he says, the discovery of chaos was a turning point in the history of science. Scientists began to look more favorably on spontaneous pattern formation. So you might wonder, why would they object to spontaneous pattern formation? Because again, because there has to be a source for order. You know, there has to be some reason why a, an, an, a, a pattern would form. And we're getting to the point now where we're, where we're acknowledging that there needn't be a reason that it just happens always, you know? So that's what he means, that science is coming around to this idea. And then he says, and perhaps more importantly, they realized something truly astonishing, that there was a very deep link, a truly cosmic connection between nature's strange power to self-organize and the chaotic consequences of the butterfly effect. All right, so there's more to this, but I want to explain for those people who maybe don't know. The butterfly effect is something, you know, it's been described like a, the, the, the beating of a butterfly's wings halfway across the world might create a tornado or something on the other side of the world. And the idea is really just, uh, is just that all you need is really small changes, you know, really small variations to get really large and dramatic consequences. Um, that's kind of the... That's kind of at the root of this unpredictability of chaos. So the butterfly effect is tied into this idea of, uh, of chaos. So where does the chaos come from? Well, it comes from these small variations, these kind of, um, you know, even unobservable, small, slight variations in, in order. Um, anyway, so this is the idea of the butterfly effect. And then he continues, he says, they discovered that the world could be deeply, profoundly unpredictable. But the very same things that make it predictable also allow it to create pattern and structure, order and chaos. It seems the two are more deeply linked than we could have ever imagined. Okay, so that last bit is really, really good. It says, the same thing that makes it unpredictable also allow it to create pattern, structure, order. So that is the description of the paradox that we that we talked about earlier. It's the very same thing that order that makes order possible makes chaos possible. They're the same thing, order and chaos. Opposites are in fact a unity, the very same thing. And he says so. He says, it seems the two are more deeply linked than we ever could have imagined. No shit, man. And that is the mystic intuition, that paradox, that like can beget unlike, that predictability, order, and unpredictability, chaos, are really one sublime unity. In myth, that's what we call the Ouroboros. That's what we give credit to for the creation of the cosmos, a union of opposites, a generative union of opposites. And that's what, that's what the science is telling us. And that brings me to the most interesting bit, um, this, the latter half of this, which is going to start 
with feedback. So we're going to call this section feedback. All right, so he asked the question, you know, when he's saying that chaos and order are more deeply linked than you could ever imagine, he asked the question, how is that possible? And then he answers the question. He says, first, though they behave in very complicated ways, they are based on simple mathematical rules. Secondly, these rules have a unique property that's often referred to as coupling or feedback. So these are the two things that make this possible, this paradox possible. The first thing is that they're based on simple mathematical rules. The second thing is they include something called feedback. He says both order and chaos can emerge on their own from a simple system with feedback. Okay, both order and chaos, opposites, can emerge from a system with feedback. So um, I don't know what comes to your mind when uh, when feedback is brought up, but what comes to my mind is that terrible fucking squeal that a microphone makes when you put it too close to a speaker. Because what happens is the sound is looping back in on itself. The sound looping back in on itself is causing feedback. It's causing interference. It's causing that terrible squeal that you hear. But that's not the example that Jim Al-Khalili uses in the documentary. He uses a, an example of, of um, video feedback. So what he does is he sets up a camera. And he st stands up in front of the camera so that you can see the camera's filling, filming himself, but also the camera. So you have the, the image of the camera that gets looped back on itself. The camera seeing the camera seeing the camera. Um, and so the camera, of course, is looking at Jim as well. So you see Jim inside Jim inside Jim. And uh, the image on the screen is this weird repeating pa pattern of Jim's. Jim as far as the eye can see. And, uh, and so this is supposed to show, you know, this weird feedback and what it, you know, an image of what it looks like. But it gets even cooler than that because he pulls out like a, like a match or a lighter or something and he lights it and he, sh he puts it close to the camera. And what happens in the feedback then is really astonishing. It's like rather than just seeing many copies of the match on fire, what you see is this like weird geometry that gets that emerges from all of the different versions of the match. It's like you see them moving, you see the geometry moving, and suddenly you see a hexagon. You know, suddenly you see a circle, and it's really interesting that you would see geometry that isn't really there that gets created or emerges simply from feedback, simply from the camera seeing the camera seeing the camera seeing the camera. A pattern within a pattern within a pattern. And what emerges from that is like a completely unpredictable geometry. Order out of nowhere. <clears throat> and Jim says as much. He says, we get a picture within a picture within a picture. He says, even though I can describe each step in the process mathematically, I still have no way of predicting the final image. He says, this is the butterfly effect in action. It's chaos in action. He says, the same system, one that's based on simple rules of feedback, creates chaos and order. All right, so this is going to become important, and this is the part that stuck out to me the most, is this idea that feedback is necessary to get this random creation of order. 
So keep that in your mind. Feedback, what is it, right? It's the camera feeding back on itself. It's, um, you know, the uh, speaker feeding back on itself. It's a signal that feeds back on itself. And whatever that is creates spontaneous order out of, out of chaos. It creates something out of nothing. So that is a very mystical thing. We're seeing it in science, but let's not forget, that is a very mystical thing. So keep that in your mind while we continue here. All right, he says, The idea that there are regularities in nature, and then totally separately from them are irregularities, and these are just two different things. This is not true. That's what he says. You look around, you see regularities and irregularities in nature, and you, you assume that they're different things, or that they were created in different ways. That is not true. Opposites are, in fact, one thing, and they're created in exactly the same way, right? And he goes on, he says, These are two ends of a spectrum of behavior, which can be generated by the same kind of mathematics. Okay, two ends of the same spectrum. Now, this is, this is what I talk about when I try to explain how opposites can be one thing. You think about them like a spectrum, you know, it's a it's a spectrum like a that, but it closes. It's a closed system. It, it loops back in on itself. So you can imagine a circle, and half of that circle is uh, one part of the of the opposite, and the other half is the other part of the opposite. But they're really one s- system, right? There's there two ends of one spectrum, and he's and he's what, what's interesting about it is that you get both from the same math. Now, in, in a mystic experience, we talk about we talk about being one with the universe, and this unity is a really important concept in mystic experience. So, when they say you get both chaos and order from the same math, you wouldn't expect that, right? You'd expect one outcome, but you don't get that. You get you get opposites coming from the same math, and so what what that is an image of is getting multiplicity from oneness. You know, from one, that's what the mystic experience tells you the universe is. It's one thing. And from that thing, you get the multiplicity of the world. And that's what Jimakal Khalili is saying. You start with one math, and you get two opposites in union. You get a spectrum from the same mathematics. Then he says, it's at the closest thing we have to the true mathematics of the universe. So the type of thing that's described through feedback is the closest analog we have. It's the closest thing we have to describing what we actually experience in nature. So there's something very important about it. It's at the very bedrock of reality. So what, what is that? You know, it sounds like a good aim for a scientific question, but it's also the same aim of the mystical pursuit What is the core of reality? And then Jim says, pattern formation seems to be very, very deeply woven into the fabric of the universe. He says, pattern is everywhere. It's just waiting to happen. All right, so a couple things pop in my head here that I want to tell you about. When he says pattern formation seems to be very, very deeply woven into the fabric of the universe... It makes me think about the, how human beings see patterns everywhere. 
you know, how schizophrenics literally see patterns and meaning everywhere. But we also do, even a healthy person does. You look up at the clouds and you see the shapes in the clouds. You look at the pattern of static on the TV and you see, you know, the image of a face or the image of an animal or something. It just pops out at you. What happens? It's like there's some sort of potential. There's some sort of chaos that lays, that underlies everything. And what it is, is the potential to become something like order. It's like potential. And the, the reality is just floating on a sea of it. And, he, and Jim, Jim says, it's just waiting to happen. Pattern is everywhere, just waiting to happen. What that means is that order is implicit in chaos. And it's just waiting to emerge. Order is just waiting to emerge. And that's so funny because it's so fucking mystical. It's something that I've said many, many times trying to describe what I, the, the knowledge that I took from mystic experience. That what the world is is something like potentiality. Right? And he says, pattern is everywhere just waiting to happen. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like potential, potentiality everywhere. And order is the being, you know, it's the here and now, it's the, it's the material cosmos, all of the ordered things that, that we've been able to, you know, to pull from that chaos. However that works, that's what order is. And it's everywhere just waiting to, to happen, to occur, to be manifest. So, so the bedrock of reality is like this chaos, this chaotic potential. And it's just nothing but potential for order. For the possible, it's basically it's a pool of possibility, something like that. And that brings me to the next section, which is called fractals. It's one of my favorite, my favorite subjects. It's partly because fractal geometry and, and fractal images, they do come up in mystic experience reliably. You know, people that have a psychedelic mystical experience will will very often talk about seeing fractal geometry. You know, maybe the world in front of them breaks up into shapes and, and is transformed into, you know, moving fractal geometry. Or maybe they find themselves transplanted into this new space, this dream space where everything is shapes and colors transforming all the time. Like the, the DMT experience is oftentimes described exactly like that or the LSD experience, perhaps. Fractals are something that accompany mystic insights. And so I've always been in really intrigued by that. Now we're seeing that, well, we will see here that the math that we've been talking about, that Turing and uh, Belusov and these people uncovered that correspond to these irregular, unpredictable shapes and occurrences and behavior in nature, that mathematics is a very specific kind of mathematics, Fractal mathematics. And that brings me to a guy named Benoit Mandelbrot. You guys might have heard me talk about the Mandelbrot set before, but a very famous mathematical formula that creates something very like this that we're going to talk about. So I don't want to take too much of my uh, glory here, so let me just slow down. Benoit Mandelbrot. Um, Professor Al-Khalili says he had a gift for seeing nature's hidden patterns. He could see that a new kind of mathematics underpinned the whole of nature. 
Mandelbrot's lifelong quest was to find a mathematical basis for the irregular shapes of the real world. Underlying nearly all the shapes in the natural world is a mathematical principle known as self-similarity. This describes anything in which the same shape is repeated over and over again at smaller and smaller scales. A great example is the branches of a tree. They fork and they fork again, repeating that simple process over and over at smaller and smaller scales. The same branching principle applies in the structure of our lungs and the way our blood vessels are distributed throughout our bodies. So if you've seen the bronchioles in the lungs, if you've seen like a map of blood vessels in your body, what do they look like? Exactly like the branches of a tree. You've got one branch, splits off into two. Those two branches continue on and split off into four, and on and on and on they go. You get this repeating pattern. All right, so uh, Professor Akhalili says, it even describes how rivers split into ever smaller streams. Mandelbrot realized self-similarity was the basis of an entirely new kind of geometry. He gave it the name fractal and represented it using an equation. And that equation is called the Mandelbrot set. Now, about the Mandelbrot set, Professor Jim Khalili says, Epic does real, it doesn't, real, doesn't really do it justice. Epic doesn't really do it justice. That's what he said about the Mandelbrot set. He says, it's been called the thumbprint of God. He says, just as with the tree or broccoli, the closer you study the picture, the more detail you see. Each shape within the set contains an infinite number of smaller shapes, baby Mandelbrots or mini, mini brats, I think they're called, that go on forever. Yet all this complexity stems from just one incredibly simple equation. Z equals Z squared plus C. That's it. And from that, you get an infinity, right? He says, this equation has a very important property. It feeds back on itself. Each output becomes the input for the next set. This feedback means that an incredibly simple mathematical equation can produce infinite complexity. Its fractal property of being similar at all scales mirrors a fundamental ordering principle in nature. All right, so let's slow the fuck down and let's take a look at, at this in more detail. With this equation that Mandelbrot was able to come up with, on both sides of the equal sign, you've got the same variable. So the equation feeds back on itself, and you get the same thing in the equation that you see when you put uh, the microphone too close to the speaker or when you film the, the, the camera filming itself. When you get feedback like that, you get all kinds of interesting and amazing things. You get spontaneous order. But in the Mandelbrot set, it's, it's not just spontaneous order, it's infinite spontaneous order. And how can you say something like infinite spontaneous order without thinking about something like God? You know? Something that's infinite. Something that creates something from nothing spontaneously. You know? And you get that from fractal 
mathematics that includes feedback. So it's what Turing and, and Belusov discovered, that there was math behind nature. Um, Mandelbrot basically codified it's like it, you know what it's not it's not just that there's a pattern there it's not just that there's math that that can describe it it's that it's a very specific type of math and it requires feedback hmm. so whatever whatever math that describes nature must be generated in feedback and i'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you why I think that's so important. I'm struggling as to when to drop the bomb on you. But it has to do with this idea of feedback. Feedback creates not just spontaneous order, not just something out of nothing, but it creates infinity. And it requires a, a signal being fed back onto itself. It requires a signal being fed back onto itself. So hold that in your mind and we'll keep going here. All right, so Jim says, when we look at complexities in nature, we tend to ask, where did they come from? There is something in our heads that says complexity does not arise out of simplicity. Remember, like begets like, right? But what the mathematics is telling us is that very simple rules naturally give rise to very complex objects. And so if you look at the object, it looks complex, and you think about the rule that generates it, it's simple. So the same thing is both complex and simple from two different points of view. And that means we have to rethink completely the relation between simplicity and complexity. Okay? This is exactly the argument we were making earlier about chaos and order. You know, there, we have to rethink that they're different things because they're so deeply connected. They're, they're not different things. They're one thing. And what we see in fractal, in fractal geometry and what we see in the math that, that underpins it is that complexity and simplicity are the same thing. They're a paradox. They're, like, they're something like the mythological Ouroboros. Complex and simple are opposites, but they aren't two different things. They're two sides of one thing. They're a spectrum. That's exactly what mystic intuition tells you, that, that you are, and the cosmos is, you know? Two sides to one thing. All right, he goes on, he says, Can nature's ability to turn simplicity into complexity explain why life exists? How inanimate matter can spawn intelligence? Well, that's, that's, about, that's a question about consciousness there. He says, all around us there exists a process that's engineered these unpredictable complex systems and hones them to perform almost miraculous tasks. <laughs> Let me say that again. All around us there exists a process that's engineered these unpredictable complex systems and hones them to perform almost miraculous tasks. Okay, what is that? He, he, just let me just finish here. He goes on, he says, the process is called evolution. Evolution has built on these randomly generated patterns, experimented to see what works and what doesn't, kept the things that do work, and built on that. It's a completely unconscious process. 
All right, so here's where I think science begins to fail, you know, their own litmus test. Here's, here's where science, and they do this all the time, where they bypass mystical questions in a way that we're not supposed to notice. Well, guess who fucking noticed? This guy. So let's go back here. He says, all around us there, exist a, there exists a process that engineers co uh, complex systems, chaotic systems, to become ordered and to perform almost miraculous tasks. And he calls that evolution. Okay. What he doesn't say is that the process that he's talking about, evolution, that engineers chaos to do all of these crazy things like become a human being and, uh, you know, evolve, you know, continually, uh, transform. That process is not explained, right? Where does it come from? Where does that process come from? What is that process? You know, he's calling it evolution, but that's not a great answer exactly. He's going to give us a better one in a minute, but he calls the pro he calls this process unconscious, and I think that's interesting. It's like, why would you call a process unconscious? Unless you were comparing it to a process that's conscious. It's almost like you're making a point to say that what I'm describing is not supernatural. It's not mysterious. There's a process that engineers chaos to turn it into life, you know? Oh, that, yeah. That's, that, that's not a mystery at all. We'll just gloss right over that. Um, we're going to see more of this. This is this bias towards atheism, this bias away from anything supernatural that prevents scientists from, from tackling or answering these really difficult questions, which they should be trying to answer. So let me get back on track. He says, evolution is based on simple rules and feedback from which complexity spontaneously emerges. The simple rule is that the organism must replicate with a few random mutations now and again. The feedback comes from the environment, which favors the mutation that are best suited for it. The result is ever-increasing complexity produced without thought or design. Unthinking, simple rules have the power to create amazingly complex systems. Design does not need an active, interfering designer. It is an inherent part of the universe. All right, so you see what I mean here. So when I said it, he gives a better example uh, or better explanation is when he says that um, the process of evolution is feedback. So that actually is an explanation of what that process might be. So what he's saying here is that there is a feedback built in to the laws of physics. There's a f the system of feedback built into reality. And that's really interesting and really mystical and really hard to understand scientifically because for something... For a system of feedback to be built into the laws of nature, you have to answer what it is, first of all, that's being fed back on itself. What is that thing? Because it has to be something that can be fed back on. What is the thing? What is the thing? You can call it nature, you can call it evolution, but that doesn't help me understand what the thing is. Those are other words for a mystery that we haven't, we haven't discovered. What is the thing that feeds back on itself if it's not God? What is the thing, Mr. Atheist? Please tell me. Um, 
you're also going to see over and over again, he says it's a completely unthinking, unconscious process. Unthinking rules, he says, but it doesn't describe where the rules come from. And why in the fuck are we saying they're unthinking? How could, isn't that a little bit presumptuous to say that they're unthinking? The rules exist. The rules of physics exist. Well, how did that happen? You know, does something make the rules? Does something set the rules? Are the rules a thing in and of themselves? The eternal matrix of being? The thing that... It, are the rules God? The thing that's always existed that everything's built upon? And are we willing to call that unthinking? I don't know. I think that's, a, that's an atheist bias in science that is unfair to the core. Just because simple rules create complexity and, you know, uh, unpredictability and novelty doesn't mean that they're unthinking, first of all. It also begs the question of where the rules come from, and in no way does this get us out of the idea of God. But that's exactly what he says when he says, design does not need an active interfering designer. It just happens, right? No, that doesn't mean God doesn't exist, Dr. Al-Khalili. It means that what you're describing is God within. God built into the laws of physics. That's what you're describing. You're saying that when you get down to the math, when you find that fractal magic, that key of infinity and, and spontaneous order, you know, when you get that key to creation, something from nothing, that what you're describing is not God outside that you're looking for and can't see and are shaking your hands that I guess he's not here. No, what you're saying is the God part is within the actual laws of physics themselves. The feedback. The feedback. That's the key. And then he says, one of the things that makes people so uncomfortable about this idea of spontaneous pattern formation is that somehow or other you don't need a creator. But perhaps a really clever designer would treat the universe like a giant simulation where you set some initial conditions and just let the whole thing spontaneously happen in all of its wonder and beauty. And so this is coming back a little bit in the other direction and saying that maybe the initial conditions, maybe, the, maybe those things were set you know, like the clockwork universe, that those things were set, then they just unwind and play out. And that that playing out involves not only predictability, not only order, but also chaos and unpredictability. So that brings me to my conclusion. And I want to focus on the feedback bit here, but I, I don't know how to I don't know how to get to it quickly and all at once. So let me just recap some some stuff here. So Turing and Belusov noticed that order arises from disorder in nature. That nature itself is something like disorder, which provides the raw material for the spontaneous generation of order for something out of nothing. It is as though the potential for order hides within its own opposite. This is exactly the same deep and fundamental truth that Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson discovered in our myths and religious instincts. From completely different starting points, each arrived at the Ouroboros, the notion that all things originate from the creative tension between opposites in union. 
far too many people write off Young and Peterson's position as mystical, as woo-woo, as based on nothing but wild speculation and a defunct religious mindset. They say that the connections depth psychology makes between our fantasies, dreams, and religious stories are fanciful, post-hoc, and imaginary. And yet those same skeptics recognize the truth of the same conclusion when presented mathematically or pointed to scientifically. That disconnect is hypocrisy. Now Peterson retells the myth of the union of opposites, of chaos and order for us. He shows us how the Babylonian Apsu and Tiamat and the Greek chaos and cosmos the biblical Alpha and Omega, the great God and goddess of our creation myths, are a description of our experience of ourselves and the world as much as a description of the supernatural birth of the universe. The matrix upon which all of reality rests is the generative union of opposites. In our myths, we also conceive of the hero, the all-seeing eye, the consciousness that is born from this union. It is the thing that separates the Ouroboros from itself, chaos from order. It is the thing that knows itself and the source from which it sprang. This is the mythological Marduk, Horus, but it is also you and I. Consciousness is the thing born from the Ouroboros and the thing that separates it from itself. You're probably thinking, how in the world are these mythological stories a retelling of the scientific one? And to that I say, surely you see the parallels in what Professor Akalili calls chaos and order at the bedrock of physics and the primordial opposing forces represented by the Ouroboros. In both cases, they are fundamental and generative. But what about consciousness? We don't see this in the scientific version. Or do we? This is where the scientific story gets mystical. Professor Al-Khalili shows us that there is a fractal geometry behind the order and complexity we see in nature. And Mandelbrot proved that this can only be described mathematically in an equation that feeds back on itself. This, it seems, is the ghost in the machine. It is feedback which fills the role of consciousness in the scientific story. Hear me out. In the past, I've described an idea that came to me in mystic experience, which represents reality as a process. We talked about Alfred North Whitehead before and his process philosophy, which is right up this, this alley. And I call this the being generator. And I used it to understand my intuition that all is one in the universe. In this image, I saw consciousness and material reality as one unity. In this way, I saw the interaction between consciousness and material reality as a kind of self-experience. Right? If they're the same thing, and an experience of, of reality is a self-experience. So it goes something like this. Consciousness experiences itself, 
and is changed by the experience. It, it experiences itself continually, however. So what is being experienced is constantly transforming. And what I have just described is the same process we encountered in the scientific story. Feedback. Right? So now you can see how feedback fills the role of consciousness in the scientific story. If feedback rests at the foundation of reality, there must be a signal reflected back onto itself. In fact, it is that very self-referential feedback that generates the order of the cosmos. In short, reality requires self-experience. It requires a signal reflected back into itself. But in the scientific story, we have no explanation for the signal. What is it? Where did it come from? Nor do we have a mechanism for, for feeding that signal back into itself. What could that even mean from the scientific perspective? If we look at this from the panpsychist point of view, however, the mystery falls entirely away. Just to remind you, the panpsychist view is that everything is consciousness. Everything. So we, let's ask the questions under that framework. What is the signal? The panpsychist or mystic would say, consciousness. Where did it come from? It has always been, and it is all that is. What is the mechanism for feedback? Self-consciousness. Consciousness doing what consciousness does. Experiencing. And what does it experience if consciousness is all there is? Itself. Right? Itself. We have consciousness experiencing itself. That's something we call self-consciousness. That's what you and I are. A pattern within a pattern. A signal within a signal. And now we can see the validity of the mythological perspective, can't we? The primordial deity really was the Ouroboros. It was consciousness reflected back into itself. And the result? Creation. Spontaneous order. Now, try as Professor Al-Khalili might to say that this is an unconscious process, a mindless feature of the laws of physics. What he has really said is that the God we seek in the highest heaven is found within, within you and I and all of nature. The fractal magic that generates order from chaos, that births being from non-being. This is nothing other than self-consciousness the feedback of God reflected back within itself. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>